Father, we uh, want to recognize your presence here this morning as we've gathered to, to worship you. We'd pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds this morning as we talk about this whole issue of evangelism and neighboring. And uh, pray that we'd hear your voice and that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds and that you'd enable us to be better at sharing the reality of who you are with the world and uh, the people around us. Um, We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It was a daily struggle, kind of a wrestling match, a a, a battle. Uh, Margaret would go to the bathroom and grab a big bottle of castor oil. And then she'd go to the kitchen and open the drawer and get a tablespoon. And the moment she opened the door, drawer, her little dog Patches, or Yorkshire Terrier, would ditch and try to hide under the bed or jump into the bathtub or go behind the recliner because he knew what was coming. You see, someone had told Margaret that if she would give her lovely little dog Patches the tablespoon of castor oil Every day, he'd have a wonderful coat, great teeth, and live a very long life. So every 24 hours, she would engage in this act of love, and there would be this struggle because Patches hated it. She'd pin him down on the floor. She'd pry his mouth open. She'd pour in the castor oil. All the time, he'd be whimpering and crying and scratching and trying to get away. Well, one day, he got the better of it. They were on the floor. They were wrestling, and his hind leg hit the casserole and it fell and went every place. Margaret got up and gave Patches a reprieve. She went into the other room to get a towel to wipe up the casserole. She came back and there was Patches licking up the casserole with this look of intense satisfaction on his face. And she learned an important lesson. It's not that Patches didn't like casserole. Patches didn't like being pinned down and having it poured down his throat. There's a lesson there about evangelism. We have this incredible message to share with the world. And sometimes the world isn't reacting to the message. Sometimes the world is reacting to how we choose to share it. We have started a little series, a mini-series on neighboring for two weeks. Uh, Last week, Danielle kicked it off and talked about why we don't share our faith and why we should. Uh, Why we don't, sometimes it's because we're apathetic. Sometimes it's because we're afraid. Sometimes it's because we're isolated. Why we should, ultimately, the number one reason is Jesus is king. And because he's king, he has the right to be worshipped and honored by all people and someday will be. And that is part of the motivation that drives us to share the reality of Jesus with our world. Also, we share because we've been commanded and commissioned to do so. Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. And also we share because people matter to God. This message of the gospel is life-changing and we want people to know His love. This morning, we're going to talk about how do we go about doing evangelism in a healthy way. We have this rhythm we talk about at Waterstone called neighboring. It's... uh, one of the three practices 
we talk about transform, neighboring, restore. Neighboring is really the rhythm that deals with this whole issue of sharing the gospel. And we've kind of created a strategy for this year that we've called One Reach One. And what we've done is challenge you to think about that one person who God has placed in your life who he wants you to share his reality with this year. And we've even tried to develop a bit of a strategy on how to do that. We've talked about prayer, engagement, and sharing. Pray, engage, and share. And this morning, I kind of want to play that out to help us see how that works. And I want to do that with a case study. We're going to go to the book of Acts, and we're going to look at a man named Philip. Philip, we're first introduced to in Acts chapter 7. He's a Hellenistic Jew, which means he's Jewish, but he's been enculturated in the Greek culture, and he speaks Greek. One of the things we discover about Philip is he's a great evangelist. In fact, he, he becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. In chapter 7, he's elected a deacon because of his character, and he's filled with the Spirit. But in chapter 8, we get to see Philip in operation. We're going to look at how he shares the gospel with the, the Ethiopian eunuch. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8, verses 26, to the end of the chapter. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chair reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay with it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was, like, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azadus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The first thing you notice about this story is that it's a, a, a story that's drenched with the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, there is supernatural stuff going on, and it's just bleeding through. Part of the reason for that is because conversion and evangelism is always a supernatural affair. You, you see it in this story. Uh, very beginning, an angel shows up and tells Philip that he's supposed to go to this this desert road heading out of Jerusalem to Gaza. And then once Philip is there, the Spirit speaks to Philip, and Philip is sensitive enough to, to, to hear the Spirit and tells him, I, I want you to go and stay by 
that chariot. And then at the end of the chapter, uh, the Spirit uh, takes Philip out, takes him away. He just disappears, and suddenly he is in another location. I mean, this is a, 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 a supernaturally drenched story. God's Spirit is at work. It's, it's a story where God is the director behind the scenes, and every once in a while you get a glimpse. The reality is, when it comes to evangelism, God is always behind the scenes directing, and His Spirit is always active. It's like in a movie. You don't see the director, but the director is controlling all the action and all the dialogue and all the buildup of the story. It's under his control. That's true in our world, especially when it comes to conversion and evangelism. It has to be true. Because whether we realize it or not, conversion, when someone becomes a believer, is always a result of spiritual warfare. What I mean by that, there are is always a battle going on for the souls of a person. Satan blinds people to the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the blinders away. Whether we understand the dynamics or see it or can, can, can be witness to it, there is something supernatural going on when a person decides to follow Jesus. And that's important for us to understand because it helps us understand what evangelism is and what evangelism is not. Evangelism is not about methodology and strategy and program and technique. Those are not the things that determine our effectiveness evangelistically, but they're the things that get all our attention. We figure out if we can have the right methodology and the right program and come up with the right strategy, uh, we'll be successful. And it's not that those things aren't important. God uses them. I can think of a host of them from the four spiritual laws to evangelism, explosion, to here's life, Denver, to walk across the room, all different kinds of strategies. And God at times uses those. But they're not the key. Because it's really not about the strategy or the methodology. It's about God's spirit at work in a person's life. That truth also tells us that uh, evangelism ultimately is not about apologetics. I'm one of those people who thinks they can argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, that's just my bent. I like to argue, I like to discuss, and I have this notion, if I can just present Christianity in the right way and make the right argument and show them how logical and reasonable it is and how well it explains the nature of reality and what a great worldview, they'll be so awed by the argument they'll convert. I had a youth pastor who kept telling me, he, he said, Nick, <laughs> People ultimately don't become Christians because of apologetics. It's an issue of the heart. As much as I dislike that, I had to admit that he's right. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that apologetics are more for the believer than the unbeliever. They're more for helping us confirm what we're committed to than necessarily converting somebody. I mean, at times, God uses them. They're important. There's great reasons to believe. Uh, but apologetics are not the key. Evangelism is also not about manipulation and coercion. Uh, when I was first a Christian, I went to a church that was pretty fundamentalistic in its leanings. And it was years ago, 
And during that time, they would have evangelistic rallies or evangelistic speakers come in. And at the end of the service, they would do an altar call. And when they did an altar call, it got pretty manipulative. They'd do soft music. They'd try to appeal to your emotions. They would put the pressure on. They would sing 50 verses of the hymn until somebody responded. And the pastor would get up and goad people into responding. And I just hated that thing. I, I just, maybe it was my rebellious nature, but, but I started just standing up and walking out. And, and part of it was my rebellion, but part of it was part of a theological conviction. I started thinking, you know, if this is really a dynamic of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit that speaks to people's hearts and wills and minds, if that's true, we don't need to manipulate anybody. We don't need to twist anybody's arm. We don't need to coerce. We don't need soft music and emotional appeals. We just need to create space for the Holy Spirit to do His thing begin to think that maybe we actually end up doing more harm when we coerce and manipulate someone into making a decision for Christ. I can remember a friend of mine named Rex. We went to high school together. I had become a believer. He was someone I had shared with. Rex was incredibly intelligent. We had all these dialogues about the reality of Christianity. I remember we were on a camping trip, and we had just had about an hour discussion about Jesus Christ. And at the end of the discussion, I asked Rex, I said, do you want to pray and, and, and commit your life to Christ? And he was still hemming and hawing. And I was frustrated. I said, you know what, Rex? I'm going to pray. You just pray after me. So I bowed my head, and Rex bowed his head <laughs> and prayed. And I manipulated him and coerced him into making a commitment to Jesus. It wasn't a good thing. In fact, I, I followed what happened to Rex beyond that point. And one of the things I discovered is he had this big question mark about the reality of his faith. Because I had manipulated him in that situation. Eventually, he had to step back from that and reevaluate whether he was a believer or not and what kind of commitment he had made. We never have to manipulate or coerce because evangelism is really the result of the Spirit of God. It's a supernatural deal. And if that is true, then it tells us that when it comes to evangelism, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit. We, we need to listen to him to know when to listen and when to speak and when to shut up and what, what we're, I mean, I mean just developing the sensitivity to the Spirit. And it means we need to look for those places where God's Spirit is already active. A lot of times we try to do our own thing when what we really need to do is look out on the world and kind of be uh, part of God's uh, junior detective, part of God's junior detective agency, so we kind of are investigating where God is at work and join in where he's already working. Because it's a spiritual thing going on. Most importantly, I think it means that uh, our impact evangelistically will be ultimately determined by our prayer. We, we, we try to train people, we try to give them methods, we try to give them programs. We think that will make them good at sharing their faith and make people respond. When the truth is, what really we should do is pray. It's interesting to me, historically, if you look at the, the revivals through history, I don't know of one revival that has taken place without a significant amount of prayer before it happens. 
And that makes sense. If what I'm saying this morning is true, if uh, conversion is a supernatural event, if it's a moment of warfare between God and Satan, then it would make sense that prayer is really ultimately the determining factor. Prayer is what makes us effective. Put together a a, a little list of things maybe we, we should be praying for as we think about neighboring and the person we want to reach. First of all, Help me here. I need my list, guys. Thank you. (laughs) Can't remember everything. Um, We need to pray for opportunities. Uh, God brings those moments in our life, and sometimes uh, they're there, but we're not paying attention. So we have to pray for opportunities and pray that we would be spiritually aware of the opportunities going on around us. And pick up those cues that people sometimes give us that tell us that they're open to, to God working in their lives. We need to pray for obedience. Uh, it, it takes uh, obedience to engage people in spiritual conversations. We need to pray to connect and to connect with those people who, who are spiritually open. And most of all, we need to pray for that one. Who is that one person that God has put on your heart that he wants you to reach this year? Can I challenge you to to make it a habit, maybe not daily, but at least weekly, to start praying for that person by name on a consistent basis? My guess is is if you do that, God's going to do amazing things in bringing opportunities uh, for conversation and the ability to share the gospel with them. So pray for your one. So that's the first step, and you see that here. This is a spiritual dynamic happening in this, this interaction between Philip and the eunuch, and that means prayer has to take place. Second thing is engagement. And it's really interesting to look at this story of Philip and the eunuch from the perspective of engagement. Um, the first thing you discover is that uh, this eunuch was probably the last person in the world that you could expect Philip to engage with around spiritual things. Uh, first of all, the eunuch is black. He is from Africa, northeast Africa, Ethiopia. So he's a person of a color, which was very unique in Philip's world. This guy is a Gentile, but not only is he a Gentile, that means he's not Jewish, not only is he Gentile, but he's a barbarian. In other words, he's from a place in the world that's on the edge of the known population centers of the world. I mean, this this guy's talk about being of a different culture and a different race and a different place. This guy's qualified. This uh, Ethiopian eunuch is a powerful and wealthy man. We know that because he holds a position of treasure in the court of the Ethiopian queen. So he has lots of power. We also know that he's wealthy. Part of the way we know he's wealthy, we're we're told in the story that he's reading a manuscript from Isaiah. Manuscripts at that point in time were incredibly valuable. If you had a manuscript of the Old Testament or a portion of the book of the Old Testament, it was probably a scroll, you were a person of incredible wealth. So this man is powerful and wealthy. We also know that he's highly educated, all right? He's literate. Now, it's amazing. He comes from Ethiopia, so we'd expect him to speak his native tongue. He's traveled to Jerusalem, and that means he either speaks Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew or all three of them. But not only does he speak them, but he reads them. Now, we don't know whether he's reading the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called a Septuagint, 
So he may be literate in Greek, or he's reading Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was originally written in. Either way, this guy has some educational chops. I mean, he is a smart man. He's totally, totally different than Philip. (laughs) Philip is a middle-class Jew, a white guy. I guess technically he's not white. He's a Palestinian Jew, so. But he's not black. And this eunuch is the last person you would expect Philip to engage with. Because remember, the other thing about this this African black man, he's a eunuch. Uh, That means he's been sexually altered. Uh, Let me put it more crassly, he's been castrated. What you understand when you begin to look at these two cultures is that uh, Philip and this man are polar opposites. They are from different tribes. And not only that, for Philip to interact with this man in a sense would defile him. Not the man, but Philip. You see, Philip was raised as a Jewish man. He was a Hellenistic Jew, but he was still Jewish. And he was taught a prayer that every Jewish man prayed when they got up in the morning, and the prayer was this, Oh Lord, I thank you. You didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now that's very offensive to us, politically incorrect and elitist. Um, but that's not why they prayed that. They, they weren't trying to be the total jerks. They were just semi-jerks. Um, they prayed that for religious reasons because they were taught that as a Jewish man, you didn't want to associate people with people who were non-Jewish because there was a potential for that non-Jewish person or that person who was different from you to defile you, to taint you, to become an obstruction to you in your relationship with God. So Philip, this is a huge barrier. Jewish white guys didn't hang out with black eunuchs. It just didn't happen. One pastor uh, catch, caught it, uh, it this way. This is what the Spirit is saying. He says, listen to the voice of the Spirit, everybody. Here's the voice of the Spirit. Philip, run up to that racially different, sexually altered man you would originally never have anything to do with and stay close. That's the language of the Spirit. That's what's going on here. It's amazing that Philip would engage with him. The second thing to remember about this Ethiopian eunuch is he's spiritually open. In fact, I would argue that he's spiritually desperate. Now, some people want to argue that he's a proselyte, a Jew living in Ethiopia and was committed to God as a God-fearer. I don't think that's the case, and I'll explain to you why. But I do think he was spiritually desperate and open. You see, in those days, a person would become a eunuch, and it was common Uh, they would become a eunuch if they were being groomed to be in an administrative position in the royal court. And the reason for that, it was a way of protecting the royal family. If you only allowed eunuchs to get close to the royal family, you protected the lineage of the family. You never had to worry about an affair. You never had to worry about whose child this was. So they would require those who got close to the royal family to be castrated. And in a sense, what this man had done is he had traded the ability to have descendants for power. He'd given up his legacy. 
And that's an amazing thing to do in a culture that was totally family-oriented. The way you preserved your name, the way you left a legacy, the way you gave your life meaning was by having family and having kids. And then they extended who you are. He gave that all up for this position of incredible power. And it means he's incredibly lonely. And here's the question that you have to ask of this story. What is a black Ethiopian eunuch doing writing in the desert reading the book of Isaiah? How does that come about? Well, here's my suggestion to you. I think this man discovered once he got into a position of power that the power didn't fill him up. It still left him empty. And the success that he experienced by being in this position in the upper echelons of government left him empty. And the uh, ability to interact with the jet set of the Ethiopian court left him empty. And the religion of his people in Ethiopia left him empty. And he's thinking to himself, there has to be something more. And he's heard this rumor about this God, this God of the Jews that is personal. And he thinks to himself, maybe there's something for me in Jerusalem. So what he does is he takes this journey. And it's a a thousand mile to a 1500 mile journey from northeast Africa to Jerusalem. It's dangerous. It it takes months on end. It it, it costs him loads of money. And in doing so, he even loses perhaps his position of power because when you're gone month after month after month, usurpers try to to step in. I mean, it's an amazing thing. He would take this journey to go to Jerusalem to worship. And then when he gets there, he's disappointed. And this is why I don't think he's a proselyte. Because if he was a proselyte, he would have known this and he wouldn't have made the journey. Deuteronomy 23, 1 says that if you're a eunuch, you're not allowed to worship in the temple. You're excluded from the people of God. So he goes to the temple and he wants to worship this God and he is turned down. Wow. But I think he's also intrigued. You see, when we pick up the story, he's reading from the book of Isaiah and it's chapter 53, but chapters 40 through 60 are what we call the servant songs. And in those servant songs, there's a passage just a couple chapters over, Isaiah 56. And I think this this eunuch had read this passage, and I think this passage had given him hope, even if he's a eunuch. It's a fascinating passage. He said, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Now, just just a comment. You're wondering, and it's a great question, why was he excluded from the temple because he's a eunuch? Well, in the Old Testament law, there are a lot of things that portray God's holiness and one of those is manifested physically. What, what a person is physically becomes a metaphor for God's holiness. So if you were castrated, if you were a eunuch, because you're not perfect physically, you were excluded 
because God is perfect and holy. It was just a physical manifestation in, in God trying to teach his people what holiness was all about. So that's, that's a little weird to us, but that's what go, what's going on. But notice what happens here because this whole thing now is getting turned around. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. That had to be music to this guy's ears because he had given up everything for power. And now God says, no, there's hope. So this man is a spiritually open and I think spiritually desperate man. Now what else is interesting in the story is that Philip has to go to extreme measures to engage with this guy. Um, In chapter 8, Philip was elected a deacon in chapter 7, but in chapter 8 he's in Samaria and he's preaching the gospel. And when you pick up the story, he is in the midst of this incredible revival going on with the Samaritan people. He's preaching the gospel and the Samaritans are responding. I mean, they're believing in Jesus. And the Spirit is being manifested in amazing ways. I mean, demons are being cast out and people are being healed and people are being converted. I mean, he's in the midst of this revival. And it's so amazing that Peter and John, two of the apostles, actually come down to check it out. All right? So he's in the midst of this revival, and all of a sudden, an angel comes to him and says, Philip, I want you to go down this road into the desert. And Philip's got to be scratching his head. Why? I mean, Philip is an evangelist. He likes crowds. He likes people. He likes to be at the center of things. And suddenly, God shows up and says, no, I want you to go to the desert road. And the word for desert means deserted. It means no people are there. And Philip is going, I don't get it. (laughs) There's so much cool stuff happening here and you want me to go there. But he goes. And when he's there, the only thing he sees is this strange sight. There's this black Ethiopian guy riding in this chariot, slowly going away from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. And God's Spirit says, Philip, I want you to go and stay near the chariot. And the word for stay near is literally a word that means to glue. He's saying, go glue yourself to the chariot. Why does he have to glue himself to the chariot? Because the chariot is moving. It's almost humorous. Philip has to go running aside this chariot and just stay on with it because that's what God told him to do. So he's running aside this chariot that's moving with this strange man who he doesn't really want to interact with. And suddenly he hears this man reading... Isaiah 53. And Philip knows, okay, God's at work here. And he does an amazing thing. He interjects, he intrudes upon this man's private conversation and says, do you understand what you're reading? Just running along, having a conversation. Eventually in 30, uh, verse 39, the Ethiopian eunuch invites Philip into the chariot. I mean, Philip goes to extreme lengths to engage with this guy. 
So the question is, what's the point of that little part of the story? The point is pretty simple. The gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a Hellenistic Jew or if you're an Ethiopian eunuch. The gospel's for you. There's no cultural elitism. There's no tribalism. There's no racism. There's no ethnocentrism. The gospel is for everybody. Everybody. And thus in the church, there should never be a hint of any kind of racism. The gospel is not just for me and mine. It's for everyone. You know, and if you step back in the book of Acts, you see that developing. If you go in the book of Acts, what you discover is that they got this commission to reach the nations, yet by the end of chapter 7, they haven't done it. It's been eight, ten years, and they're still in Jerusalem. They're just hanging out with each other. They're just enjoying the fellowship. They're just being with their buds, with their tribe. And they're not doing what God called them to do. So all that changes with a guy named Paul, right? Because Paul begins to persecute the church. He starts killing people. And then that latter part of chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. And then it says at the beginning of chapter 8 that a great persecution broke out against the church. And suddenly all these believers who've just been hanging out get doing what they were supposed to do, which is reaching the world. And Philip goes and begins sharing with Samaritans. And you see a progression. The gospel begins with the Jews and goes to the Samaritans, then goes to the Gentiles, and then goes to the enemies, Paul, and even the Romans. Because the gospel is for everyone. Everyone. And I don't know if you realize this, but the gospel is transcultural. Sociologists and historians, and I think they're right about this observation, have come up with this notion that, that religions are geographically tethered. In other words, there are cultures that develop uh, a religion, and they develop that religion to create solidarity among their people. And because they're created to create solidarity, the religion tends to be tethered or centered around the geographical place where the religion was created. So they would argue that uh, Europeans and North Americans created Christianity. That Middle East, North Africa, and some South Asia created Islam. Uh, Far East created Buddhism, Confucianism. And then South Asia created Hinduism. And those religions have stayed in those geographical locales. In fact, there is a book written um, called Whose Religion is Christianity by Laman Sani. He's a professor at Yale. He's a black African. And he raises this question about how world religions have uh, infiltrated into other places. And, and this is what he found. The statistics are, are absolutely fascinating. He found that 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. In Europe, North America, South America, China, and the Far East, you only find 4% of all Muslims. He's right. Uh, Islam stayed basically where it was created. It's geographically tethered. 80% of Buddhists live in East Asia, which is where it started. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. 
Just what you would expect. What's really fascinating is that is not true of Christianity. Um, we think it is. We think that Christianity is a North American European religion. <laughs> Look at the statistics. 25% of all Christians are in South and Central America and the Caribbean. 22% are in Africa. 15% of all Christians are in Asia. But that number is growing incredibly fast because of what is happening in India and what is happening in China in terms of conversions. Get this, only 12% of all the Christians in the world are in North America and about 20% in Europe. We sit here and we think all the Christians around the world are like us. I got news for you, the Christians around the world are not like us, we're the minority. The average Christian in the world is, first of all, a woman, has brown colored skin, is poor, and lives in the southern hemisphere. We're not the majority. We're, we're just a blimp, 12%. I mean, we're part of something much grander and much bigger than we could ever imagine. God, uh, Christianity is not geographically tethered. It's transcultural because it's a, it's a gospel for all people, even black Ethiopian eunuchs. For everyone. The other thing we need to mark from this story about engagement is this, that oftentimes the people who are what we would consider religiously uh, outcast or socially outcast, the people who are on the margins, oftentimes they are the people who are the most open. I, I mean, this, this Ethiopian eunuch is desperate. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be on the, the outside. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to pursue success and get it and then discover there's nothing there. He knows because he lives with this rejection. Everybody looks down at him because he's not right. He's altered. Could it be that the people God wants to reach most are the people or some of the people we're most uncomfortable with? Could it be that uh, the people God wants to use us to touch are the people we <laughs> push away? Could it be that God is far more interested in, in the marginal and the socially rejected and religiously uh, rejected people in our culture than we'd like to admit? that God's very interested in them? Could it be? Could it be that he doesn't want to simply reach people like us? When I first started in ministry, I had just gone to seminary and I got hired to be a part-time youth pastor. I was a terrible youth pastor, okay? Uh, um, but the one thing I did do is I developed some individual relationships and discipled some kids that had some long-term impact. I can remember my first Sunday at the church. I walked into the group. It was just a room, a bunch of normal kids. And then two, two boys walked in. They were very tall. They were brothers, Jeff and John. They had long hair. They were dressed in black. They had big black boots on. 
they had wristbands with spikes. And I thought to myself, those are the last guys I'm going to have an impact on. And they're probably the least interested in spiritual things. And I found out that I was wrong on both accounts. (laughs) John, especially, the younger brother, was the most open spiritually of all the kids I came in contact with my four years working with high school kids. John was the person that God used me to impact more than any other kid I had relationships with. The person I thought who would be least spiritually interested was actually the most spiritually interested. Because that's how God works. So we pray and we engage even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's hard, even if we have to go to amazing extremes, we engage. And then thirdly, we share. Now in this story, Philip has an easy entry into the gospel because the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus and talks about Jesus sacrificing himself for us. And in the passage it says that he uses that to tell him the good news about Jesus. And the word there for good news is gospel, the gospel of Jesus. I want to give you a couple things you can do in terms of the sharing side uh, um, that might help us. One, we, we need to learn to have spiritual conversations. It's interesting to me that uh, Philip begins where the eunuch is at spiritually. He's reading Isaiah 53, so he starts in Isaiah 53 and goes from there. I came across what's called the angle scale. I really like this. We used to live in Christendom, and what that meant is everybody had assumptions about who God was and Jesus was, and it was very easy just to share with someone by sharing the gospel. People no longer share those same assumptions. So now we have to be sensitive to where somebody's at and adapt our conversations to where they are. So look at the scale. No God framework, experience of emptiness, a vague awareness of Christianity, interest in Christianity, awareness of the gospel, positive attitudes toward the gospel, etc. All the way to, to committed life in Christ. You see, it makes no sense to share the gospel message with a person who has no God framework. If they have no God framework, that's what you need to be talking to them about. So you have to adapt to where your audience is at and learn to converse in their language, in their space, and move them along the continuum. You see, part of this means a shift in our attitude. Rather than seeing ourselves as salesmen, we need to see ourselves as travel guides. And oftentimes, rather than making statements, we need to ask questions. There's a couple of questions that I think might be helpful to ask. Do you have a religious background? Does it mean anything to you? Have you ever had what you would call a spiritual experience? If so, what was it like? Do you think there is a God? And if there is, what might it be like? And what have you done with the spiritual side of life? People are more open to talking about the spiritual side of life than we might ever assume. So have spiritual conversations. Second, learn to tell your story. Now, Philip doesn't do this in this passage, but if you step back in the book of Acts and you look at the life of Paul and you look at how Paul shared the gospel, he shared it again and again and again simply by telling his own story, his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. 
Sharing your story is a great way to share your faith because people can't argue with your experience. And you get to talk about the reality of God and what he's done in you. Uh, learn to share your story or give your testimony in two to three minutes. That's something you can practice. It's a technique, but it's one that God uses. And finally, have spiritual conversations, share your story, but finally, learn to share the gospel. In other words, uh, people coming to Jesus come to him because they understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They understand the gospel. We've done people a disservice, and part of that disservice is, is we've taken the gospel and shrunk it down so that what we tell people about is the fact that they're sinners and Jesus died for them, and if they pray this prayer, they get to go to heaven. And we share that as the gospel. And that stuff is true, it's necessary, but it's also incredibly incomplete. And when we share the gospel that way, we turn Jesus into a commodity. And we allow people to simply be consumers. We're saying Jesus is all simply about you. And I got news for you. Jesus is all simply about you. Jesus is king. And if you accept him as your king, yes, you get forgiveness. And yes, you get to spend eternity with him and be part of his kingdom. But don't, don't mistake and think it was all just about you. It's all about him. And when Philip tells the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus, he says he tells him the gospel of Jesus. The word for gospel is a word that used, was used to describe the notice of a great victory. And, and what uh, Philip is telling the eunuch is, hey, Jesus has scored this great victory in defeating evil, defeating sin by his death on the cross and being resurrected and establishing himself as king of the universe. See, that's a different story than just Jesus died for me and if I pray, I get to go to heaven. You need to tell the whole story. And you can see that the Ethiopian eunuch got it because what happens, he sees water and once he sees water, he what? He wants to get baptized. And baptism in that day and age was a mark of allegiance and what the eunuch is saying is, I want to change my allegiance. I've been serving the queen of Ethiopia now I want to serve King Jesus. And he gets baptized. And you know what? The Ethiopian eunuch leaves an incredible legacy. Church history tells us, or tradition tells us, that he went back to Ethiopia and became the first missionary to Ethiopia and established a church there. And I was talking uh, to somebody after the first service and they were sharing with me a family they know of that came out of Ethiopia who are believers. And you can trace the legacy of the Ethiopian eunuch down to this very day in terms of the gospel and the kingdom. Pretty amazing stuff. So my challenge to you is to pray, engage, and share who is that person that God is calling you to reach this year. Let's pray. Father, help us to... Uh, be aware of your spirit and have the boldest and courage to engage with your people. Take advantage of those moments to share our story and ultimately the gospel. May you use that in our lives, in our church, and in our community to bring a, a revolution and a revival to us and to our world. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.